Welcome to the Community Development Podcast. A podcast dedicated to community development practice and approaches, sharing our learning and connecting the workforce. My name is Russell. to be back around the mic once again after a short break. Uh, probably taking a little bit longer for me to, to get back around the mic than I intended, but life sometimes gets in the way. But it's a warm welcome to the podcast to Rob Ashelford, who is the head of Nesta Cymru. How are you, Rob? I'm very well, thanks, Russell. You? Okay, dodging the showers. And uh, I've got a wealth of, of these podcasts coming up. And it, it feels it feels quite timely, actually, the way some of these are, are being lined up. And I'll, I'll, I'll give a sort of a flavour of some of those towards the end. You know, there's elections in Wales where I live, um, you know, there's local elections elsewhere in the UK, you know, lockdowns are, are easing, people are returning to the pubs and things like that. And it feels like a sense of sort of, uh, not, not necessarily a sense of optimism, but a desire for a sort of like a sense of renewal with things like political manifestos being published and and, and, and some of the, the, the discourse and discussion and debate that, that follows some of that. And I think this report, I think, is absolutely critical, the one we're going to be talking about. It's called Data Poverty in Wales and Scotland. Curious geography, and I'll invite you to explain that in a, in a bit as well. It resonates with something I'm involved in specifically at the minute, which is a, a writing task around sort of digital aspects and elements of community work, which I'm sure will crop up as well. But before we get into all of that, Rob, what do people need to know about you? And maybe you can explain a little bit more about who Nesta Cymru are and, and what they're involved in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thanks for giving us the chance to, to have a chat about the work today as well. So I work for an organisation called Nesta. We're the UK's innovation agency for social goods and we design, test and scale new solutions to society's biggest problems, hopefully changing millions of lives for the better. That's what we're set up to do. And in Wales, we do that through kind of two particular vehicles. So we have a partnership with Cardiff University called ERLAB, which is a public service innovation lab where we try and uh, improve public services for the people who use and deliver deliver them through research and, and practical innovation support and more recently through the newly formed Nesta Cymru which is uh, which is being set up to deliver Nesta's new strategy through to 2030 focusing on a fairer start for, for everybody healthier lives and a more sustainable future which are our three brand new mission areas but the work we're going to talk about today came through ERLAB which is uh, as I said our, our public service innovation lab. Always mindful there is uh, an, uh, an element of an international audience to these as well so Cymru is the, the Welsh term uh, the name for Wales so uh, w- why the work I mean there's a, a superficial I, I wouldn't ascribe to this at all but there's a, perhaps a superficial reading of this that says well okay some of these issues around data digital and we'll we can explore some of the terms there and the definitions related to them in a bit but this has only come to the surface because so much has been shoved online over the last year because of the pandemic. So, you know, it's obvious that some people are going to be exposed maybe a bit more than they, they otherwise would be and things are going to return to normal. That would be a superficial, lazy uh, reading of that. What was the motive behind the, the inquiry and the research, Rob? I came across the concept of data poverty about a year ago in a conversation with an arts organisation based in Bridgend called Tanya, who do a lot of work with their local community. And the director there, Lisa, was telling me about a a family who were having to literally make the choice between data or dinner. You know, and that that's kind of a, a phrase that encapsulates everything that we're trying to explore through the work that we're doing. You know, there are people who unfortunately are having to make really significant choices about whether they can afford to be online 
or whether they can afford to feed themselves and their families. And I'd never really considered that that was an option that people were having to consider. That was a choice that people were having to make until I had this conversation. And I think naturally my instinct was to go and try and find out a bit more about this as a as a, a challenge to understand whether we knew anything about it, whether it was a, a problem we knew how to solve, or whether this was an innovation opportunity almost, you know, something that where new ideas could come through that helped to actually make people's lives better and and really interesting. And really quickly actually it became apparent that nobody had ever really investigated data poverty as a concept when you try and look for research around it you get lots of research around data that describes poverty but never specifically research around how some people can't afford internet data data that allows them to get online and, and play a kind of full and active part in the digital life that we that is now so necessary to all of us so we just kept on pulling on the thread and the more we pulled on it, the more other people kind of started to appear who were also interested in or working in this space. We've hopefully managed to get to a point now where we have a much better understanding of the the kind of core of what this challenge really is and some of the ways that we can start to think about solving it, hopefully as well. Mm. So that's, uh, yeah, that, that's where it came from. It was kind of rooted in a conversation with a community organisation and them describing a problem that was real and happening right now. And I think what you said is really interesting about how this has kind of become more apparent through the pandemic. This this has always been a problem. Uh, it is it has definitely been exacerbated by the very sudden shift to online working, to online education, to online socialisation. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. If people are more familiar with the term or terms such as digital inclusion, digital exclusion, then digital literacy would be another one, perhaps. What's the distinction between those that people might feel a little bit more comfortable with and maybe for some individuals encapsulate what we're calling data poverty um, and the term data poverty? Is there a, you know, is there a distinction and where does it lie between some of those terms? So I think data poverty is a, is a form of digital exclusion. Essentially, it's it's part, probably one of uh, one third of the Venn diagram of different ways that people can be digitally excluded. So, you may not have the skills necessarily to take part in in kind of a, a full digital life. That's one part. You may not have the infrastructure, whether that's the, the the kit that you need or the the connection that you need to be able to physically get online and take part fully in a digital life. What we found through this work is that there's there is this third facet, which is you you might have the skills and you might have the the infrastructure and the kit, but if your data allowance runs out after a week, you're excluded as a result of that. So it's a it's another facet of of the kind of digital inclusion exclusion conversation, and it's the bit that's been missed, I think, um, over the years. It's the bit that we haven't really paid enough attention to. So that's how it kind of, I, I think that's how it fits within mm. that, that broader conversation. And I think that's probably helpful for people because it can be the case that people have aspects of the, the kit, the infrastructure, but without necessarily the means to use it as fully as they would like because of afford- lack of affordability or you know, not being on the right kind of packages and, and, and so on. It's not a question of one doesn't have data that um, because one doesn't have the access to the infrastructure or the, or the or the hardware or the kit or something, I think that's that's a fairly clear 
point to make, I think. Yeah. Certainly my reading of this anyway, based on, uh, on, on your findings. So the geography, it covers Wales, it covers Scotland. Presumably that's just a collaboration between different arms of, of Nesta. Or is there any a great no, significance there? Very, that's that. Yeah, very much it. Uh, we we have a, a similar team based up in Scotland, and and this was an opportunity that the, the two of us um, felt was was pertinent to our our two organisations. I mean, it, it's uh, it's fortuitous that there's a similar election happening in Scotland at the moment. So so timely mm. timely for both of us to do this work now. Um, thinking about how policies might change over the coming months and and whether or not. We, we do get new governments, whether or not we can influence the way that they're thinking about um, digital inclusion or exclusion as a result. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was, it was great to kind of collaborate with those guys and to see the differences between the two nations as well and how, how we're approaching kind of more, more broadly digital inclusion, but also how people are starting to think about the provision of data to people who perhaps can't afford as much as they, they need as well. There's some, some subtle differences between the two. The two countries yeah, as well. Yeah. The headline sort of stat, if you like, or the first one as you as you open the, the report in terms of the key findings, one in seven adults in Scotland and Wales are experiencing data poverty. What really resonated with me is I was looking at some data, uh, it was back before Christmas now, but it was um, Ofcom data, so like, you know, the regulator of, of sort of communications, radio and the like in, in the UK. And they were looking at consumption of podcasts during 2020, during the, during the lockdown to that point. I think the report came about maybe November 2020. And within that, there was a, a, a statistic that said one in seven adults regularly listen to a podcast in the UK. And so it sort of resonated when I see this one in seven, because it basically the same number of people give or give or take um uh, on, on, on the surface of it the same number of people who are regularly listening to podcasts and i know plenty of people who do that i am one of them mm. the same number are experiencing data poverty so you know listening to a podcast would be you know a relative luxury given what they would might choose or need to spend their their, their data on there's a lot of people we're talking about here there are. There's, you know, across the two nations, it's about a million people in all. It's, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's about 350,000-ish people in Wales, 350,000 adults, sorry, in Wales. They're experiencing data data poverty in some form or other. And the headline's important because it does what, exactly what you said. It, it kind of grabs the attention. It's a big number. It's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But there is some subtlety underneath that as well. So you the way that we've defined data poverty, actually, that there are a number of different facets to it. So, uh, one I, one of the first things we found that was that there was no shared definition of what data poverty actually was. You know, across okay. all the people who are working on it, no, nobody could say it's this. When you say data poverty, it means this. So, one of the first things we did was get a lot of people together to try and come up with a shared understanding of what we mean by that. And when we talk about data poverty, we actually we're really talking about individuals, households or communities who can't afford sufficient private and secure mobile or broadband data to meet their essential needs. So there are a number of different variables within that definition. So have they got enough? Is it private? Is it secure? Mm -hmm. So can they do Mm -hmm. things safely like online banking? You know, can you can you use uh, your connection for for financial transactions? So there's lots of of kind of subtleties underneath that. And and a a lot of that number, that that kind of 14 percent, one in seven are people who are experiencing at least one of those variables. So lots of people are saying to us, you know, my connection isn't secure. That's a form of data poverty because you you are excluded from doing certain things safely because you don't have the right kind of data. 
And that I think is is an important thing to understand with data poverty. It's not just that some people can't afford the data, it's that they can't afford the right kinds of data. You know, they're, they're not able to do everything as securely or privately as perhaps you or I might in our own homes at the moment. Yeah, and I think that nuance is important, and particularly, you know, particularly when I mean, there's a there's a sort of a, a fork in the road that, uh, in my mind, we reached earlier in the discussion. We talked about the community organisation Bridgend bringing this to your attention because uh, I'd be just as keen to go down another fork that sort of says, well, okay, well, the value of, of those sorts of organisations bringing this experience, this lived experience, you know, examples of this nuance to to the attention of somebody like yourself, who's in a let's say a relatively privileged position in terms of being a part of an, an organisation. But that nuance is important, isn't it? And it's only when you really kind of pick beneath the, these issues, these terms, that you begin to you begin to see what that what that means for people in a lived way. And I think the way you've constructed the report around sort of case studies is testament to that, and is a is a very good way of of communicating that to people. I think. Yeah, and it, we've got to be really careful we don't rush to solutions to this. Mm-hmm. And that we really understand, you know, what, what is the challenge and therefore how might you go about solving the different facets of this challenge? Like that's that's why it is so so important to really dig into this and to understand the subtleties, you know. And there's a great example of this in the case in one of the case studies where, you know, a family has been given a three G dongle or four G dongle to solve some of their data challenges. Somebody's gone, mm-hmm. they don't have enough data, I'll just give them some. The problem is they haven't told them how to use it. So they put it in a drawer and it's sitting in a drawer unused. That is the wrong solution for that family. And yeah. So we really need to understand you know, that that's a skills problem. They don't understand how to use that particular bit of kit. And that's why they're data poor. They don't necessarily need to be. So we we really do need to kind of get into the subtleties of this. And I think that plays out across a lot of the findings that we have. So the kind of headline statistic of one in seven is a, is a kind of big eye opener. But the one that really stuck with me was more about the number of people who are experiencing some form of data poverty because they, they don't know how to find a better deal. Mm-hmm. And that's about 45% of people who we who we surveyed in, who we surveyed in this poll. You know, 40 Five percent of people aren't don't feel confident enough to shop around for a better deal for their data. That's half a million people. That's the sort of thing that we need to think about. That's the kind of thing we need to tackle, and that requires a very different approach than giving everyone a dongle. Yeah, yeah. Through the pandemic, uh, children being homeschooled, and we were getting newsletters around you know, different sort of resources and strategies for coping with all of that, both as parents, you know, the surrogate teachers, but also from the, the children and young people's perspective as well, of course. Uh, and one of the ones that was routinely in the newsletters I was getting was this, well, again, basically free data for people, whether it was in the mm. form of a, you know, a SIM card of some description or, or whatever it was. And welcome, I mean, it's better than not having it. But again, what struck me was you've got to access this email attachment in order to be aware that that's available to then be aware that this is how you go about getting it and I don't know you know with, with everything else that the pandemic brought just even getting to get into the email getting finding the time and getting around to downloading the attachment to read it in itself some days felt like a bit of a triumph yeah and again it's, it's something you've just sort of alluded to now was probably kind of gnawing away at me a little bit but touch wood relatively privileged in being able to not worry about these things if anything it's having enough data to go around all of the, the luxuries that, that the family want to make use of the data with. In fact, we upgraded our broadband package early in the, in the lockdown in order to cope. 
and I recognise fully how privileged that sounds. But you're right, it, it, it sometimes needs more than just abundant availability and here you go and throw everybody a, a bundle. Any other of the headline findings that, that particularly struck you? I think the other, the other thing is probably worth this thinking about a little bit more, especially given the focus for the podcast, mm. is um, you know, access to, to public Wi-Fi and how those people who are probably more at risk of experiencing data poverty are the ones who have probably been most affected by the loss yeah. of internet access in public spaces as a result of the pandemic. So we we know that use of public Wi-Fi has probably dropped by about a third as a result of places being shut, so you know, libraries, public transport, cafes, you know, all of those places where you would just turn up, log on, do whatever you needed to do. And I think we have to make sure that as places reopen, access to the internet in those places is restored. There is a, a concern that kind of public Wi-Fi is perhaps seen as cost that is of of kind of low value to organisations. And I think we have to be really careful to make sure that we reinstate that access for people because it's the people who are most at risk of experiencing the the impacts of data poverty who make the most use of those spaces. So that, that I think is really, really important and hopefully something that, that people who are listening to this podcast can take away and, and think about in their work over the coming kind of months as we emerge from the lockdowns, hopefully a little bit more. Public access to these things is key. I mean, I think in my local library, I think of the sort of the council or the hub, they call it these days, but, uh, you know, it's essentially a library has availability of, uh, of both, not just the internet, but also, the, the, you know, the computers as well. And, you know, they're always being used. Mm. They're not they're not these sort of white elephants that sometimes there's a bit more of a sneering take uh, or analysis and, and, and critique of these facilities can sometimes have. Um often being used and you do see people with a pile of papers or something you know they're not they're just kind of idly as it were you know searching the internet they're there with a with a a specific purpose related to i mean you've touched on things like banking but i mean universal credit tends to be the the headline or or the more poster boy as it were for these sorts of digital by default facilities Mm. and services that people are obligated to use as well i mean that's the thing isn't it and the impact of of failing to engage on time and all the rest of it in terms of sanctions and the rest of it is stringent as well you know, we're talking about life-changing mm. uh, impacts potentially on people, aren't we? Yeah, that's it. And I have to say, I, one of the one of the things that we're we're really pleased about as a result of this work is that Welsh government have um, have written data poverty into their new digital strategy. They're, they're doing lots of really interesting work at the moment through their new centre for digital public services. We've had great engagement from their team around this. They are now really starting to think about how they design digital services that, that are not only hopefully easy to use, which mm. is a lot of what that kind of digital by default work stands for, but actually accessible in terms of people who, you know, who might be experiencing data poverty. You know, it's, it's no good asking somebody who's got no data to, to go online and do something. You have to think about whether or not, can they even access it in the first place? You know, a beautifully designed service is no good to somebody who can't get through the door. And mm. So we're really pleased to see that that they've taken this on board and they're taking it seriously to the extent that they're now writing this into their their new digital strategy. So hopefully we'll see some new good practice emerging in Wales as a result of that. Yeah, sure. You talked about public access. I suppose in my mind maybe there's a slight sort of variation in terms of um, you know the publicly provided access, local authorities, for example, and 
I mean, you know, if, if a bus goes past me these days, it, it, my phone tends to tell me that there's there's Wi-Fi available on the bus, um, not the, yeah. even though I'm not sitting on it. it. Sounds quite bourgeois. It's almost more Wi-Fi than I need, you know. But this sense that yeah. um, there's also, given the focus of this podcast, is is around community development. What are some of the you know the non-public but the more community communal solutions and and, and interventions to to this issue? I mean, to what extent would you know? I'm, I'm familiar, of course, with local organisations and, and cooperative arrangements for buying fuel, oil, for example, in, in rural communities, communities coming together to maybe erect a, a mobile phone mast, for example, and, and you find those communal solutions are not in abundance, but they are out there if you look hard enough. To what extent is there a, a community response potentially to, to data poverty? I think it's definitely one that needs exploring. So I think one of the things that's been really interesting in doing this work is has been recognising that lots of people have tried different things to try and solve this problem, but none of them are necessarily the solution. Mm. And most of them are not particularly well evaluated. So we don't necessarily have actually a particularly good understanding of what the right solutions are for the right things. I think right. when we start thinking about the, the role of communities in this, it, it's a lot like, I think like you've touched on, it's, it's probably a lot like community energy. You know, so how, how do people come together to provide an essential service for the whole community in a way that's affordable for everyone and perhaps generates revenue that can be poured back into that community as well. I think that nobody, to my knowledge, and I'm sure that the uh, the, the team at Digital Communities will be jumping up and down and shouting at me at this point, but to my knowledge, I, I haven't seen a good example of that yet from the work that we've done. And I think there's a danger here that big organisations step in before the communities really get a chance to properly understand what their role could be. So we know that your Microsofts, your Facebooks, your Googles have all been out there thinking about, you know, what's the what's the big tech solution to making sure everyone can access the internet, mostly in the developing world, you know. So you've got the the kind of wild and wacky project loon where Google, is it Google or Facebook, I forget. You know, one of them is is putting hot air balloons up with internet connections attached to them so that they can get it into remote and rural locations, you know, probably a bad idea. <laughs> I, I, I think it is. You know, it's that those things are happening. Big tech is thinking about how it can make this available to people, but that comes at a cost in terms of what you can access, what they know about you, data and privacy are, are challenges when it when it, we we step into that space. So, I I it's mm-hmm. difficult to say this you know, this is the role for community, but I, I do think there is a role for community, and I think community needs to think about it sooner rather than later because otherwise the solutions will be provided for people by organisations that perhaps don't always have people's best interests at heart. Or there's an ulterior motive around, you know, getting them in to lock them in to access other services yeah. and paid for services and, and, and the like. Because I think that's one of the things, isn't it? You know, there's there can be plenty of, of, of Wi-Fi and data available if you know yeah. where to look for it. But actually how much of that comes at, on the surface, it, it's free or it feels free, but actually you've got to... Um, you've got to, you've got to buy something. You've got to purchase something. You've got to sign up for something somewhere along yeah. the line. Or if it if if it's if it, if it's free to begin with, then there's a, a a hook a little bit further down the line, of course. And I think you know community organisations, you know by and large, will not have those sorts of ulterior 
uh, motives and certainly a kind of form of, of of profit or sort of financial transaction aspect to it. I mean, I'm always struck by what the, you know the episode of this I did with with Becky from from um, the, the Benthig Library of Things project in in Cardiff in Rumney. Um, you know, the library was one of the few places she could go as a, as a new mum, as a very young mum that didn't expect her or require her to to part with cash, basically. Mm-hmm. There's not that many of those sorts of spaces left, as was the last the last year's yeah. proof. That, you know, when there were very few at all, um, uh, you know, available to people, and, and hopefully those that do exist will reopen in due course. But they grow in number rather than continue to to, to shrink in number. Mm. I'm, I'm minded, uh, given uh, the, this other piece of work involved in writing this this co-writing this book uh, around aspects of digital community work for, for Alan Twelve Trees, a friend of the podcast. There's an organisation in Cardiff, uh, South Riverside Community Development Centre. You might be familiar yeah. with them, Rob. They provided the first publicly accessible PC, mm. uh, internet-enabled PC, back in back in the dial-up days. Uh, remember those? Um, back in the, the mid '90s, I think it was up 1994, 1995, something like that. Long before public bodies or maybe sort of community public-minded bodies, such as maybe colleges, universities, etc. Long before those were providing this, this community organisation had seen a need and. And, and, and met that need. And now it's only one PC, and I'm sure that you know one PC for a, a, a you know community the size of South Riverside is clearly inadequate. But nevertheless, it, that was their first step into providing some aspect of um, of, of, um, of IT infrastructure locally uh, in an area of you know of, of, of disadvantage. And, um, and 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 that that for me feels to be more than coincidental. Mm. To be perfectly honest, that it's a community organisation that that is alert to that in much the same way. That, that, that Tanya Theatre was, was, was alert to the, to the issues around data poverty that they brought to your attention. That's it. And, and I think, you know, hopefully what our, what our research has, has given people are a number of jumping off points to think about different solutions and different roles for the community as well. So if you, if you think about infrastructure, privacy and security as a thing, you know, is there a way that our community organisations or community facilities can provide private and secure internet access mm-hmm. for people who might live in shared accommodation? For instance, you know those those are the kinds of things that we we can we can hopefully now start to think about. Part of this should also be coming back to that kind of headline stat, which is around forty five percent of people not having the confidence to be able to to switch. And I really wonder to what extent community can play a role in that. You know how do how do we help each other to fill the gaps in our skills and knowledge um, that would allow us to actually just remove a big chunk of people from. The potential impacts of data poverty as well yeah and of course there's always a, a slight conceit when talking around this and i'm fully aware of it, it around the assumption that the people who are involved with community organizations involved with community forms of, of, of response to these issues they themselves the community development workforce and sort of activist base can also be at risk of some of the issues that we talk about community development tackling disadvantage poverty inequality discrimination data poverty and so on mm. so i think there is uh, uh, again a, a response or, or maybe a requirement sort of within the community development kind of scene if you like to to be alert to the fact that actually there's things that we can do to help our peers and help others not just those people in the community however so defined for, for, for our own individual organizational purposes um, there's more that we can do to help each other and that learning from one another i think is is, is really something that we we lose sight of at our, 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 our peril to be perfectly yeah, honest absolutely absolutely yeah 
So if someone was to listen to this and to think, well, actually, we've, we've had an idea, you know, we were alert to this, but we maybe didn't know enough about it, but this has helped kind of flesh it out or add some colour to the issue. Maybe they're already doing something and they were alert to it. Because one of the things that you talk about, as again, as a headline finding is, you've, you've, you've touched on it already, but this sense that we need to find out what works, what has impact on, on individuals' lives, communities' lives, and then being able to build that evidence base. If people have got maybe something to contribute to that, what would you suggest is the is the best way of them doing that? What's been really lovely is seeing how us kind of drawing some of these conversations together has led to people being able to take it and run with it in different directions. So there are now two yeah. kind of key things that I I point people at. So the first is that there is there is now an all party parliamentary group in the UK Parliament that's focusing on data poverty, and they are going to need stories and evidence and questions. And critique so i would i would firmly point people at that to start off with the second thing which is a much more practical thing is the good things foundation who are a digital inclusion foundation have recently been awarded some funding by the nominate trust to set up a data poverty lab which they are going to kick off later this month i believe i don't know what format's going to take but i would very very much point people in that direction they are going to be doing lots of the practical work hopefully around how you develop new solutions to, to some of this challenge the other the, the final thing i would ask people to do is to really put pressure on some of the organizations that have been handing out devices and data to to make sure that they properly evaluate whether that was the right option but also to really think about how they prevent a cliff edge for those people who've been in receipt of those things over the last 12 months or so so the worst thing we can do is take those devices away from people um when the pandemic is over, in inverted commas, mm. you know, how do we make sure that those people who've had some support are able to sustainably move to a position where they have enough data, even if it's not through you know a, a dongle or a device or, or something like that? So I think there's mm. there's a number of things that people can do if they're they're interested in in kind of taking things forward here. So yeah, I, I definitely point people in that direction. And I think if, if anyone's interested in carrying on the research, there's, there's definitely questions that we haven't answered yet. Definitely questions we haven't answered. And certainly I think one of those from a community development perspective is, well, what are the what are the potential interventions and means of advocacy or support, whatever it might be, that the community development um, sector and workforce can uh, can contribute um, or conjure or, or innovate? Uh, I think sometimes innovation can be a word that perhaps feels as if it's uh, only the domain of, of of people in labs and you talk about labs mm. and, and universities and, and tech, uh, you know, and, 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 and things like that in, in Palo Alto or something. But um, innovation can be relatively humble as well, I suppose, relatively speaking. The best ideas often come from the people who are experiencing the challenges because they mm. see it day to day and they understand it. And there are loads of great organisations in Wales that can help people develop new ideas. So, you know, I'm sure you've spoken to the co-production network. I would I would go and talk to them. Mm. Um, I think they're they're a great bunch of people. There's there's lots of organisations like that that can that can help people to do that. The report is easily found uh, on the internet, assuming you're not experiencing data poverty. Obviously, yeah. uh, that cliff edge that you referred to, um, I was tr- trying to dig out. I couldn't remember which case study it was in in the report, but it reminded me. I've just dug it out now as you were talking. So the profile of, of Jenny in Glasgow and how very quickly found herself in the situation. So it's not a sense that you're in you're in data poverty. You can leave it and and that's it. You 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 forever sort of flown that nest. Mm. You can slide back into it. You can find yourself 
yourself back in as uh, much as you can with other forms of poverty as well, of course. It's quite a powerful profile that things unraveled for her in that case study pretty quickly. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. You know, it's I, I, and I, I think perhaps the most important thing that you've touched on there is that this is a, a symptom of poverty, a lot like other things. So you know, to a certain extent, this comes down to a lack of money. And we have to really think about that. And that that is one of the big questions that we have in the answer. To what extent is this? How, how does this interact with other forms of poverty? You know, to what extent are people really making that decision between data and dinner? And I think the thing we haven't really got our heads around is what's the real impact of a situation like Jenny's and how many people do experience that? You know, you, you, you have access to the internet one day and you don't, you probably don't even think about it. And then all of a sudden you've lost your social life. You've lost that, lost access to your, you know, your ability to work. You've lost access to your ability to access universal credit. If you're in a lockdown or if you're shielding, you can't go out and do this stuff in a public space. And we really do need to dig into that sort of stuff a little bit. Like I said, I think it is an important piece of work. It's an important report. It is an agenda that perhaps has perhaps a little bit more currency going for it, given the circumstances we've all found ourselves in in the last few months. But I think it is important to, to say that it was a factor already. Um, and as, as I think you rightly pointed out, it has probably been exacerbated. And just because the pandemic, hopefully, Touchwood is... Uh, the worst of it has passed us. Um, I think you know the ripples will be felt for some time yet, and I think aspects of inequalities will emerge, or are still to emerge in future months and years. But on a, on a, on a perhaps a more day to day level, it feels that much of it is behind us. It's, it's nevertheless you know something that might might raise its head again in terms of you know data poverty and the wider digital exclusion agenda as well. So I think, as I said, all credit to you for for doing the work and and all power to to you with it, and hopefully it does influence those that. Um, uh, have a role to play in it all. If anybody wants to keep abreast of other things that Nestor are involved in, or a lab, or some of your other partners, what's the best ways of doing that? There's a few things people can do. So um, they can follow us on on Twitter. We're at Erlab Wales, all one word. Uh, similarly, LinkedIn, we have uh, an Erlab Wales page there. Or you can go to erlab.wales, which is the Erlab website. If you're more interested in what Nestor's up to at the moment, that's nestor.org.uk or at Nestor UK on twitter as well yeah really grateful for your time rob and once again thanks thanks for the report and the important piece of work that you've uh, you've been involved in no, thanks for having it. it's been good to chat thank you for listening to the community development podcast Follow the podcast on Twitter at comdevpodcast, C-O-M-M-D-E-V-T podcast. And to support the podcast and help it share learning, connect the workforce and raise the profile and the merits of community development approaches, why not become a patron at patreon.com forward slash the CD podcast.